Friends, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Now, we've been in this series in Ecclesiastes that we've called Life Under the Sun, and we're in week six today. Uh, Ecclesiastes is a wisdom book, and in it, the preacher is speaking to us on variety uh, and ver- various realities of life under the sun, life lived here on this earth. And we've looked at various topics we considered Uh, vanity under the sun, wisdom under the sun, pleasure under the sun, the seasons of life under the sun, uh, loneliness under the sun. And today's topic, a very serious and important one, is worship under the sun. Uh, After the 9 a.m. service, uh, one of our attendees said to me that it felt like I was bringing uh, the rod to the congregation. Um, And it reminded me of Proverbs 13.24, which says, um, of course, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Uh, and so I love you, Cornerstone. So if it sounds like I'm bringing the rod, I don't mean to. Um, but uh, the word of God is, is weighty because the, the matter today is weighty. The subject is weighty. And so with that, I do invite you to stand for the reading and receiving of God's word. Our standing is an act of worship, but which we acknowledge this word is uh, not man's word, but God's word given to us. So here now the reading of God's word. Ecclesiastes 5, beginning with verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. But God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And please be seated. And would you pray with me once more? Uh, Father in heaven, we recognize that your word is uh, given to us as a gift, uh, and we receive it. Um, Sometimes it will rebuke us. Sometimes it will encourage us. Sometimes it seems very uh, stern. Sometimes it's very gentle. Uh, But this is because you're the living God speaking to us through a living word. And so speak to us this day as you address us on the matter of worship. I pray that we will be blessed, Lord, as we hear your word preached and as we have a heart that is attentive to listen to what you have to speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm sure you've all heard the words before. Uh, Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. Right? They are opening words that are spoken at the beginning of a wedding, often referred to as the declaration of intent. Uh, And that's because what the presider or the officiant does at a wedding is declare, give the purpose statement for why everyone has gathered that day wearing their very best uh, because they've come to witness the holy matrimony of bride and groom. And so in the similar way, if we were to talk about Sunday worship, talk about coming to church, how would we finish this sentence? Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today for what? What's the goal? What's the end? What's the purpose by which we've gathered and assembled? Why did you wake up, wash up, get dressed, drive to church, park your car, walk this long distance in the cold and sit down in a pew to worship? 
Why, of all the things you could have been doing this morning, are those who are home gathered around a screen watching a live stream of a man who can't look back into the camera and see if you're there or not? Why have we congregated? Why are we singing? Why are we praying? Why are we confessing? And why are we now listening? And the answer, I hope, isn't unknown to you. We've gathered, we've assembled in order to worship God. It's a very clear statement and declaration of intent. But if you're completely honest, and I hope you are with me and with yourself, that may not exactly be the reason that you're here this morning. You may have your own reasons. And so many times we often do. Some of us are gathered here because of habit. We can't remember the last time we've not gone to church. We've gone our whole lives. Some of us are here out of guilt. We would feel awful if we skipped. Some of us are here out of pressure. Your spouse dragged you here. Your parents dragged you here. You were made to come here. Uh, some of us have gathered for social reasons. We're lonely. We haven't seen people in a while. We're quarantined at home. We're working at home. Everything's at home. We just want to get out. You fill in the blank with any of your personal reasons. Um, and there are a lot of reasons that we've gathered here. But the reason that Cornerstone has this worship, the reason we meet in this place in this hour, the reason we engage in all the various aspects of our liturgy, the reason that all of this exists with all of the servants who are making this happen, the reason we invite you here is to worship God. Right at the center of this day, right at the center of this service, right at the center of our worship, at the center of our thoughts and our meditations and our reflections is not you, but it's God. He's the focus. He's the object. He's the audience. Now, you may have gathered here this morning uh, in the hopes of receiving a blessing. But the true purpose of worship is to come and give God a blessing. Now, real talk for a moment here. We all desire to be blessed in the service. That's the expectation with which we come. And I do pray that you are blessed and I want you to be blessed. But is our experience of being blessed in a service or blessed in a worship or blessed by the sermon or blessed by the praise or blessed by prayer or blessed by communion, is that more based on what you're getting out of worship? Or is it based more on what you're putting into worship? Or put it another way, is a blessed worship service a service where you've received much? Or is it one where you've given much to God? What marks and determines whether you've been blessed or not? What's at the center of that measure? Is it you and what you've gotten from God? Or is it God and what you've come to give him? You see, worship is a serious business. And so let's begin talking about it. The preacher begins and ends this section of these verses with two sobering commands and admonitions, one that marks the beginning of the section, one that concludes it. There are two bookmarks that show you this is one unit. So look with me at verse one, which begins, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And then that section ends with verse seven, for when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. And so the two bookends of this passage is worship is about God. And the preacher is instructing us how we should worship God. Now, I think for some of us, it rubs us the wrong way from the very beginning. The very fact of receiving instructions on how to worship God is a slap in our face, especially those who say, I want to worship God however I want to worship. It's a slap in the face for those who insist that God uh, is pleased with our personal individualistic expressions. 
we worship God as it's best for us to worship God. But the words of the preacher are sobering because he's saying, wait a minute, cowboy, not so fast. Because before you come and you worship God on your terms, what are God's terms? How is he calling you to come into his presence? How is he calling you to bring worship? And I think the answer is with reverence and with awe. And so this morning, I want us to focus on that question. What is my heart attitude and my heart posture as I come and bring worship to God? Am I more concerned with how uh, free I feel before God? Or am I more concerned with how much fear I have before coming to the Lord. Now we'll talk about what that word fear means uh, in a little bit, but let's begin by looking at verse one again. The preacher writes, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now the house of God in the Old Testament is the temple, and we don't have a temple, of course, but the temple represented the presence of God. And so the very instruction from the preacher is that when you come into God's presence, uh, you need to be careful. You need to pay attention to the manner in which you approach him. Because worship, after all, is not simply filing into a room and singing a song as if it's a concert or listening to a talk as if it's a TED Talk. Coming into worship is a gathering into the throne room of God. That we come into God's presence because Christ has torn the veil when his body was torn on the cross for our sins. So now when we enter into God's presence, we are entering the holy of holies, the most holy place. My question is, is there any sense of holiness when you come into God's presence to bring him worship? Is this approach in your attitude as you come into God, is it marked with holy reverence and godly trembling? Or is your demeanor more uh, one that's casual and flippant and nonchalant? Is your gathering now in the the presence of God in worship, really any different than how you file into a movie theater when you're looking for your seats or how you're sitting in the bleachers when in a sports stadium when you're waiting for the game to begin? Is there really any difference? The preacher says, guard your steps. Be careful how you're approaching God. Inspect your heart. How many of us do that? And this is why it's so important in our, in our service here at Cornerstone that we always begin with silent preparation. Do you make sense of it? Right? We, we need that moment of silence, of quiet, to still our hearts, to check our hearts, to, to realign our attitude and our posture. Because if you're like me, so often in the week, we've gone skew from the Lord. And we need that reorientation to come into the sanctuary and ask God to fix our hearts. Because who of us comes in, who of us files in at 10.30 in the morning, already filled with holy reverence and godly fear and heavenly awe and glorious thoughts and we're so chipper and ready to worship God. Because if you're like me, you come in tired and sluggish, late and rushed, unwilling and unwanting. You come in filled with distractions and burdens and worries and anxieties. You come in with anger or annoyance from something that morning or something that you've carried over from the night before. Basically, you've come into God's presence as a sinful human being and you join the company of other miserable, grumpy sinners. And now you're supposed to be joyful and bring your praises to God and shout with joy. Yeah, right. Could there be anything less natural for the sinner? Could there be anything more forced? 
But that's precisely why week after week, when we gather into God's presence, when we gather to drink from the well of his abundant grace and we come to feast at the table of his mercy, that we take a moment to ask God, Lord, guard my heart. Help me to approach you with the appropriate fear and reverence and trembling because I've skewed from you. So we ask God, we begin with silent preparation. We ask God to guard our hearts, to fix our hearts back on him. Now, verse one continues, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know what, that they are doing evil. Now, uh, the preacher's clarifying here. He's saying, by the way, when you come in to worship God, God doesn't merely want these empty religious uh, formal acts. He says, that's the sacrifice of fools, all these motions that you're going through. Yeah, your body may be present, but is your mind, your spirit, your heart present? Because if your body's here, but your thoughts are elsewhere, then the preacher says, this is not just foolish. Look what he calls at the end of the verse. He calls it evil. Those are some serious words. And what's the point? The preacher's saying, you know what God is most concerned after? Not that your body is present in the room, but that your heart is in worship. And that's marked, that, that, that's described when we're told to come before God, to draw near, to listen, right? To let God speak first. Because that means when you're in the room, you, you know who God is and you know who you are. And you say, well, God, you speak first. You're the Holy One of Israel. And the sacrifice of fools is all of this external religious and, and worshipful expressions by which we can uh, trick others to think that we're serious about God, but we're really not fooling God. And why is it evil? Not just foolish, why is it evil? Because it's an evil thing to try and win the applause of man, but lose the audience of God. Remember those very words that God spoke to the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel, when he says, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, it's so easy for us to read that and say, yes and amen. What a good verse. And some of you are good Presbyterians. You're nodding. <laughs> mm -hmm. But you believe in this verse, but look at your Sunday routine. Maybe this is where the rod came in. <laughs> You spend your Sunday mornings, you shower, you brush your teeth, you pick out your outfit, you get dressed and you come and you take all of this time to prepare the outward appearance. But then how much time does that leave you to prepare your heart? None of us would risk leaving the house with some eye gunk in our eyes. None of us would risk leaving the house without tidying our hair. None of us would risk leaving the house without making sure your breath doesn't smell. And yet all of us, or so many of us, risk leaving the house without preparing our hearts for worship, without preparing, without guarding ourselves. So then the question is, yes, praise God. He, he doesn't see as man sees. Man looks at that word appearance. God looks at the heart. But then what are you really preparing when you come to church? More of the outward appearance and more of the heart. And the preaching continues in verses 2 and 3. Be not rash with your mouth. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. 
And the picture here is that of a worshiper who understands what's happening in worship. And when you really know what's happening, when you understand what's going on, you are chatty and you are babbling. Now here in the 1030 service, it's quite quiet. But in the 9 a.m. service, it's a little bit louder. There's a little bit more, more voices, so many more people. You know, we have a little, other little preachers in the room who are trying to compete with me for volume in that service. But who are they? They are all the little children, right? I mean, hopefully we don't have like a deacon who's trying to like talk and be chatty in the service. Why? Because little kids don't understand what's going on. But as you grow older, you understand what's going on. And the preacher is saying, if you really know what's taking place in worship, you will not be chatty or babbling. You will let your words be few because in worship, in this hour, there is something special happening. A most mind-boggling type of, of reality of sorts. Two things happening, clashing to one another. The divine and the human are communing in worship. The infinite one and the finite one are sharing a moment in space and time. Creation is engaged with the creator in what we were created to do. The sinful stands before the holy without being consumed. And most mind-boggling of them all, God Almighty is smiling in delight upon you who were once enemies of God, but now through Christ are adopted as his children. That's what's happening in worship. And when you understand that, you understand the distance between the heavenliness of God and the earthliness of man. You understand the distance between the eternality of God and temporality of man. You are humbled into reverent worship. Have you grasped what is happening here in this moment? And the world understands this. Now, I watch a lot of movies. I'm really into science fiction, and I love watching space movies. And one thing I've noticed is in all these shows, movies, when um, a team goes to the moon, there's always the same scene. The space shuttle lands on the moon. The first person comes off. They step foot on the moon. They turn around, and they look at the Earth, and what? They're always silent. They're always still. They always have their breath taken away as they pause and silent all and wonder because they understand the glory of what they're seeing. Never have I seen in a movie when someone steps off of a space shuttle, looks at the earth and says, wow, Houston, this is amazing. Can you believe that I'm up here? Well, the colors are very vivid. Nobody does that because you are so stunned by what you see that you are stunned into silence. Well, friends, what we behold when we gather in worship, it's so much more glorious than beholding the sun, the moon, or the stars. We are beholding the one who created the sun, the moon, and the stars. So let our words be few. Now I get it. There's a common objection to this. Well, all of this reverence and fear and trembling before God, I don't like that kind of worship. It's too stiff. It's too formal. It's too rigid. The Presbyterians look like they have, you know, uh, sticks in their back and they, you know, they're so rigid and, and what's wrong with them? Can we be more? Well, you know what? I mean, an informal worship doesn't breed intimate worship. We have this idea that somehow a formal worship and, 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 and intimate worship aren't compatible as if they're on opposite ends of the spectrum. But, but that's not the case. Why should it be? Now, I've been thinking in our own church in, the past, in October, we've said this, right? Three weddings. We've had uh, more uh, proposals. We have, you know, uh, yours truly getting married soon. I've been thinking a lot about weddings. And one thing I've realized is, is, is weddings are very formal events, you know, and, and we all understand uh, we, you, you don't go to the wedding in, in basketball shorts and a T-shirt, Right. You go to the wedding, you know, in a dress or in a suit and you look your very best. At the same time, what is a wedding? 
a wedding is a celebration of the most intimate union between man and woman, two flesh becoming one. So this formal event is a celebration of the most intimate relationship that man can be in. We understand not all the time that formality kills intimacy. No, not at all. Sometimes formality fosters greater intimacy because it shows how serious people are taking their vows and their commitments, right? The formality sometimes preserves and actually magnifies. It adds depth and substance and gravitas to the relationship. No one would go to a wedding and see the officiant in a robe and and people in suits and, and matching gowns and look at that and say, oh, that couple, their relationship must be stiff and rigid. In the same way, you don't go to a wedding in Las Vegas where the officiant is dressed like Elvis Presley, see how informal it is and go, oh, they're madly in love. Because formality is not opposed to an intimate worship. So the same is true when we gather. Because we know God, because we love God, our deepest desires are to express affections for him, to worship him, not on our terms, but his terms. Because yes, on the one hand, God says, come and call me Abba, Father. But then God also comes in the scriptures and says, you know what I call myself? A consuming fire. God says, yes, draw near to me. But then he goes out of his way to say, but remember, I'm in heaven and you're on earth. So when we come to gather and worship on God's term, we're not coming as consumers. Consumers come with three C's in mind. They want convenience, they want comfort, and they want something casual. But those are the three things that an airline hopes their in-flight service provides their customers. But a church doesn't set the terms of worship based on consumer experience or customer satisfaction. It sets it on God's terms, the terms of reverence and awe. Now, the preacher continues in verses 4 and 5 with another warning. He says, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. Then he says, it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. And what's being described here is an unfaithful worshiper, which is the worst kind of worshiper. A worshiper who comes to God, makes all of these promises, makes all of these vows. What are they doing? They're, they're manipulating God. They're trying to uh, bargain with God. God, if, if, if you do this and I do this and you do this, and you know, then I will be. And, and they make all of these promises. They bargain with God. But it's interesting because what does it say? It's, it's better that you shouldn't vow because God's saying, I didn't ever ask you to make a vow. You're coming to me because you want something from me. And then the problem is what makes it really bad is I've never asked for a promise from you. I never asked for a vow, but you're coming to me. You're making all these promises and vows, which I never asked for. But the worst thing is verse six, let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake, which means that there's a guy who's making all of these vows. Then the temple messenger comes and said, well, remember you made these vows? And the guy says, oh, oops, that was a mistake. And God's saying, why would you do that? I've never asked for these things. You know, in fact, I would go as far to say this. An understanding of worship, where you think worship is you coming to God and making promises and making vows, is a misunderstanding of worship. Because worship is not about you coming to God and making promises and vows. Worship is you coming to God in response to the promises and vows he's made to you. This distinction is very important because it's going to separate the difference between a religion-centered approach to worship and a gospel-centered approach to worship. Because religion-centered worship says, worship God and he'll do something for you. It's a transaction. But gospel-centered worship says, worship God in response 
to what he's already done for you. See, religion-centered worship says, if you give God a little something, he'll give you a little something. Gospel-centered worship says, God has already given you everything in the gift of his son. Come and worship. You see, worship is never about you and what you are bringing to God. But it's about what God has done for you. God making good on his promise. And that promise was the sending of his one and only son, Jesus. Because God is reminding us, I'm in heaven and you're on earth. So one distinction is creatureliness. The second distinction is I'm holy and you're sinful. So another problem is sinfulness. We have creatureliness, we have sinfulness. They're both problems. What is Jesus? The God man, the one who has crossed the bounds. God come to get you. God come from heaven to earth to get you from earth to heaven. God from heaven to earth to die to get you from earth to heaven to live. And in coming down, he has bridged that chasm. And he has reconciled the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. That's what the gospel is promising. And so what is worship? Worship is a response. God, you have made good on your vows. You have made good on your promise. All of them are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And we respond with worship. And friends, so if you take the sacrifice of God seriously, then you will inevitably take the worship of God seriously. Gospel-centered worship in response to God and his faithfulness to his promise and his provision. Well, the preacher ends with verse 7, and so that's where we will end. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Now, fear here is not about being afraid of God. Fear is, uh, can be a good thing. So we are often controlled by what we fear. And so if we have a fear of God, that means we are controlled by God in the sense that our worship is controlled by God. We worship as God commands. We worship as we take our cues from God. So fearing God doesn't mean coming and being afraid of him, but coming and saying, God, I worship you on your terms as you have asked me. So I come to you, not seeking a blessing from you, but coming to give you a blessing. I'll leave satisfied, not as I feel so full as I leave, but as I feel empty in a way, because I've given you all of my worship, my attention, my thoughts, my words, my heart. And let me wrap up with this thought about worship. You know, the coronavirus pandemic, you know, as 2020 is ending, it's been tough. We had an officers meeting last uh, Sunday for a couple of hours and we reviewed 2020 and looked at 2021, but it was easy to review 2020 because we just looked at the list and said, well, 90% of this we didn't do. There's nothing to review. All of these plans, everything we had on our schedule, all of our agenda, our strategy, our vision, think kingdom, second sight, all of that was, was scrapped. And all of it came to screeching halt. Churches everywhere. But one thing that the coronavirus pandemic has really revealed and reminded us is this. What is essential to the church? And here's my conclusion. Everything that a church does can be paused, can be pushed back, or can be canceled, except the very thing we do every week, worship. Worship cannot be paused. Worship cannot be pushed back. Worship cannot be canceled. 
So if everything is stripped away from Cornerstone and the only thing we have left is gathering and worship, then let's do our best, put all of our energies to do the most essential thing by the power of the Spirit, which is to worship. And we heed the words of the author of Hebrews who writes, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Join me in prayer.